Welcome to Trade Experts, flipping the script on the common narrative of international trade. We shine a light on the bright female leaders of this dynamic field in order for female voices to be heard and recognized equally in debates about trade policy, whether in the media, at conferences, or at negotiating tables worldwide. From trade policy, economics, and law, to regulation, technology, and digital policy, these experts will be overlooked no more. Let's challenge the status quo. On today's podcast, we have Alyssa DiCaprio, who is the head of trade and supply chain at R3. So thank you. Welcome. If you can start us off with a little bit more about your your role at R3 and maybe how you got to that role, how you built your career. Sure. I'm super excited to be here. So thank you for inviting me. I joined R3 about two years ago. And R3 is a company that uh, builds the blockchain platform called Corda. So this was very different from kind of where I had come from. By training, I'm a trade economist. I got my PhD at at MIT, and then I went and worked for the uh, UN for a while, where I was mostly working on uh, regional integration in Africa. And then I moved to Asian Development Bank, where I was for about five years in Manila and in Tokyo. And there I was working on uh, kind of digitization of the trade process. So working with customs officials, uh, working with other government officials, as well as the private sector to really think about how they could, you know, promote innovation and digital transformation uh, in, in their countries. I was also responsible for trade finance while, while I was there. And that's kind of where I got into blockchain because I, you know, I was calculating this global trade finance gap and we were showing that small and medium sized enterprises weren't getting enough trade finance. Uh, so they weren't growing. And this number was not really changing year to year, but I, you know, a lot of what we were doing, we were putting more money into the same kind of projects. And, and I was, you know, really struggling to understand how we were ever going to move the needle on, on this gap. So we started seeing blockchain and, and decentralization come up and, and, and it really occurred to me that this might be the thing that changes everything. So that's why I left the bank to come to work to, for this company and, and really do it myself, right? Understand the technology and implement the technology. So that, that's kind of how I got here. How can blockchain provide more access to SMEs for trade finance? Blockchain does does a number of really interesting things. Um, I, you know, I won't go too much into the, the technology, but, you know, when, when you think about it in terms of how it could help companies that are trying to export more or import more, when you think about SMEs, the one thing that they're really, really not good at is signaling their fitness to be financed. And, and that's really, a, you know, so banks are not incentivized to do due diligence on a small and medium-sized enterprise because it's expensive, it's difficult, and they're not going to do a lot of trade transactions. So, so what blockchain allows is that company to have an identity that can then uh, and, and immutable evidence of the existing trades that they've done. So today, a bank might go to a, you know, a small company in Vanuatu and say, okay, well, tell me how much business you've done over the past year. And they're like, well, I traded with this guy down the street and you know, that guy over there, and here's, here's my books, which are handwritten um, and very difficult to verify. So the, the benefits of blockchain are really around creating the identity um, that allows us to then have this record of, of what actually did happen. Um, so, so that's that's one way. But there's, I mean, there's a number of different interesting things that the blockchain can do. If we start with a thousand foot view, what was your career path, and what experiences have you had along the way? You know, as I mentioned, I started with studying the problem. That was kind of the academic part of my career. 
And then I thought, okay, well, let me work with, with multilaterals. And so that was the UN portion. And then I thought, okay, let me work directly with governments and banks. And that was the Asian development portion. If we can backtrack just a little bit, what got you to study and be an economist? So I was an intern at the U.S. State Department in Cambodia in 1998. And at that point, the, the late 90s were really, really an interesting time for labor, because this is around the time when, uh, you know, Nike was being uh, accused of using child labor, and, uh, you know, a lot of other garment factories were really getting getting dinged on this. And, and at the time, they were saying, hey, we have no idea who owns those factories. We contract with someone, a company, who then goes on and contracts with the factories. That's not our problem. And so, you know, th this is when everybody, this is when the kind of like sustainability movement started coming out and, and people were, were, you know, really saying, I'm buying this brand. I want to know that it's made with labor that's, that's paid the right wage, that has, you know, proper safety standards. So I was, I was an intern in, in 1998 at, at the State Department uh, around this time. And there were a lot of factories in Cambodia producing for the U.S. market, for Gap and, and companies like that. Uh, and the labor conditions were not great. So there was a lot of labor unrest at the time. It was it was a year uh, they were having elections as well. And so what we would have happen at the embassy a lot is workers would come and protest in front of the U.S. embassy, and they're like, "We're not being paid properly. We're having forced overtime. You know, there is violence towards workers." And the U.S. embassy really couldn't do much because they were producing for the Gap, but they were not employed by the Gap. They were employed by, say, uh, you know, a, a Chinese company or, or a Korean company. They were the sort of two largest at the time. So what my boss used to do, he was the economic officer, and he, he actually ended up being the ambassador much later to Cambodia, which was amazing. He was just an amazing guy. He would tell them, okay, look, we can't do anything to help you. But what we can do is you need to go to the Ministry of Labor. I'm going to call them and tell them you're coming. And then I'm going to ask them to update me how they've solved your problem. And so just this little thing that he did incentivized then the Ministry of Labor, who would have just closed their doors and ignore these workers, to, to actually listen to them. And, and so that was, that was very sort of transformational for me. I was like, wow, you can actually do a lot just, you know, with a phone call. So then what happened with the Department of Labor? Did anything change? And his actions directly translated into uh, what's called the U.S.-Cambodia Bilateral Textile Agreement which was an agreement that was formed between the U.S. and Cambodia at, around that time. And it, at, at the time, we still had quotas uh, for garments and apparel. And so it allowed Cambodia to have uh, expanded quota for you know, uh, T-shirts and, and bathing suits and the types of things they were exporting to the U.S. if they could certify that they, the factories were following internationally recognized labor standards. And so that was the first time I thought, wow, you know what? Trade can actually change the world. And, and so that's where I, I really started to get interested in, in what was what trade could do. So you were in, you were living in Cambodia, and then you came back to the states for an uh, additional degree. Uh, yeah. So I, I finished up my master's, and then I worked for a U.S. labor union for a while because I was like, wow, if they're doing all these great things in Cambodia, I want to see what is happening in the U.S. So that gave me a, a very different perspective on you know what what is happening in labor and. and you know, why you would have a union. So then you went and worked for the UN? Yeah, so after I finished my PhD, um, I did a postdoc at NYU uh, for a year. And then after that, I got a job at a UN University in Helsinki at a place called the World Institute for Development Economics Research. And so there I was, I was there, I think, for three or four years. 
focusing on uh, regional integration, mostly in Africa, but also a little bit in Asia. Then you were talking about promoting digitization in customs organizations. Uh, is that both on the public side, and, you said, and the private side? Well, yeah. So that's after I left the UN. Um, and, the, and the reason I moved from UN to Asian Development Bank is because I was writing all these policy papers that I thought were just so brilliant. And literally nobody was reading them. I mean, maybe my mom. <laughs> but that was about it. So I, I thought, okay, well, this is influencing no one. So if, if I actually want to change how policy is done, I need to work with policymakers. Um, so I left to go to Asian Development Bank, where at the time we didn't have a lot of trade experts. There were only three of us. And so we worked in the economics research department. And really we had a, we had a pretty free hand to, to think about how, how we measured trade, uh, how we could promote it. And, and how that would contribute to economic development in, in developing Asia, uh, which was really the, the motive of the, the bank. And so digitization was something that just seemed quite natural, right? Because, I mean, a lot of trade, you're talking about trading paper documents and multiple bouts of verification and checking. And particularly after the global financial crisis, this became much, much worse. And so that was really where a lot of the friction came from. And so, you know, what I, what I focused very much on was e-commerce, you know, promoting e-commerce, promoting web portals for SMEs, making sure customs officials were, were allowing electronic documents. So even though laws were on the books stating that electronic documents were acceptable, you had customs officials refusing to accept them? A lot of times what, what you'll see is there will be, for example, take e-signatures, right? Most countries allow for e-signatures to be used instead of a, a, a wet signature. But if you actually go to any official and try to hand them an e-signature, they'll be like, get out of here. Please give me a piece of paper that is signed the way I require it. And, and you're not going to argue with that official that, no, you have to accept this. Your law says you do. So just what's actually implemented is, is not what the policy says. So, so it was a lot of that, like, you know, trying to work with them to, to see where the, where we could reduce the frictions that were causing them not to adopt what, what could be a much more efficient process. What was the biggest objection that the customs officials were, were providing, you know, against this, you know, advancement to digitization? Well, it's, I think it went beyond the customs officials because um, the customs is actually kind of nice. They can just, because it's just one agency, they can just say, no, we have electronic documentation and everybody has to use it. But if you talk about, say, single window, for example, which is a big focus, everybody's like, wow, electronic single window would be so great. And yes, it would, but it requires so many different entities to get together, agree to do it, make sure that they can accept the same data formats documents um, that it's so, so difficult to make it actually happen. And then there's a, this kind of additional, almost mechanical component, which you normally hear about in infrastructure, but it's true in digital as well, which is that you can create this wonderful electronic process, but if you don't have anybody that knows how to update it um, or how to maintain it, then it's as soon as something goes wrong, they're going to stop using it and they're going to revert back to paper. So, so paper is, is quite persistent, um, for, for that particular reason. We're getting better at it, but it was we were still struggling back then. Can you tell us a little bit more about your transition from maybe the, the, the public sector into supply chain? 
how did you marry those two areas, public, private, supply chain, and, and economics? Sure. Um, yeah, I know. It seems kind of weird, right? Well, so so for me, I've always had one overriding goal, and, and that's to make trade, make it easier to capture the gains from trade. Because, like, I mean, kind of what, what we know about trade is that it can change the world, right? It can do, it, it drives GDP growth, it, it's an employment engine, uh, it's the single most effective way to raise living standards, but it doesn't fulfill its potential. And that's been the case throughout time. I mean, no no country, no, no single entity is able to capture the theoretically possible full gains from trade. And, and so that's what, what I've always, you know, sort of focused on is, is how do we improve the ability of, of actors to capture those gains, particularly developing countries. Why did you decide to make the move from the public sector, like the bank, to the private sector? It's always a bit frustrating sometimes working with officials because you say, you know, here's, here's a great policy. And they're like, no, thanks. There's an election next year. We're doing this instead. So, you know, when I was at the bank, it became very clear since I was working with both the private and the public sector, that the private sector actors sometimes were the ones that were really instigating and, and creating the change. So that for me was why I moved. I, I felt like I had done as much as I could at the bank to promote innovation uh, in the products that we had and the processes that we used. Um, and now I wanted to see what it was like in the private sector. So it was, it was quite a jump. How different is it working in a private entity versus a public entity? It's extremely different. The major difference I would say is that when you work for a large multilateral institution, your decisions don't necessarily matter that much as an individual. And what I mean by that is if a project goes wrong, you'll get yelled at, you know, you, you might not have a great performance review that year, but nothing will really happen. The, the bank is not going to collapse. The UN is not going to stop working because you made a mistake. But, you know, working in the private sector and working particularly for a startup, if I make a mistake, that changes the trajectory of the company. Um, so suddenly it becomes much more important to make sure that I am absolutely confident what I'm doing is correct. And so that's been, for me, the, the single biggest difference. It's, it's much more exciting, but it's also much higher risk. <laughs> And how much of, you know, your prior experience are you using in your current role? All of it. All of it. Um, it's, it's, been, it's been critical that I, that I had this background, that I, that I understand how to talk to a policymaker, that I understand how to talk to a bank. I can use the words that they're familiar with. And, and you know, jargon is important uh, in trade, no matter where, what side of it you're working on. Not to get too detailed into technology, but... Blockchain is such a hot topic, and I wanted to ask you um, just a little bit about R3 and Corda. The little bit that I know is that Corda is more of an enterprise um, application rather than public, right? So what people normally think of blockchain is like cryptocurrency, public information. What is the difference then, the difference between um, the enterprise application of Corda versus something like cryptocurrency blockchain? Sure. Well, I think, okay, so if you think about it from a trade perspective, um, when most people think about uh, trade, they think about the physical movement of goods, right? So you have a buyer in one country, a seller in a different country, and they're uh, exchanging a container load of manufactured items between them. But what a lot of us in trade think about is not that physical movement of goods, it's the data exchange that allows the physical 
Um, so that's that's really where blockchain comes in, um, because all blockchain is is basically a database, right? Um, it's a database that allows you to seamlessly exchange information uh, between parties, where the information that I see is the same as the information that you see. So originally, the the way that blockchain developed was Bitcoin, right? It was it was developed for cryptocurrency, and and so this is the public blockchain elements of it. It was never really intended to be used for trade. It was intended to be used, uh, you know, to, to have this this open uh, decentralized currency. The difference with Corda is, and maybe it would help to to give a, a little bit of a background to to R three. You know, we started out as uh, basically a, a consulting company. We were building on different blockchains for a consortium of banks. Um, we were building on Ethereum and and, all, and public blockchains because that's what there was uh, in in the beginning. But then when it went to deployment and we said, hey, banks, wouldn't you like to use this public blockchain in your internal secure system? And they said, absolutely not. Um, more important for us uh, is that it needs to be secure. It needs to be confidential. Uh, we need to identify every actor on the network, which, you know, with a public blockchain, you can't do. You can be anonymous. So what we did was, in order to stay afloat as a company, is we went back and built Corda specifically with the specifications that were given by the banks. So it works very well for regulated institutions, which is the case in finance, but also the case in other sectors like aerospace and, and automotive, even garments and apparel, where you need to certify that it's followed internationally recognized labor standards. Um, so that's a, that's a real difference with enterprise blockchain and public blockchain, is that um, it's built specifically with identity and confidentiality in mind. You need to know every actor on the network. Your bank will not do business with you if they are not sure who you are. So, so it's it's really that's that's the primary difference, and and so it's called enterprise because really that's if, if you're a, if you're a bank, if you're a company, that's what you're going to require. I read your article. Where do you plug in your blockchain? And um, you know, wanting to, I, I want to learn a little bit more about how you know multinational corporations could you know, with multiple ERPs, right? They could they could use this enterprise blockchain. How, how can they use it to to help with intercompany communication? Sure. Um, well, I think the way that you can think about this is that uh, there's uh, kind of two activities that blockchain can change. The, the first is uh, where you have data that needs to be exchanged between different parties. So when you think about any kind of a trade transaction, there's not just one party involved. There's not even just two parties involved. There's, you know, a buyer, a supplier, a shipper, a bank, probably two banks, uh, a freight forwarder. Um, so it, all of these entities need at some point to have data about that, the movement of those goods. Uh, and the way that, and it's very, it's like completely decentralized, right? I mean, these, these entities are all in different countries. Um, and the way that it happens today is that every... I exchange the data to you, and then you take that data and put it into your internal system. You forward it on to the next entity. They take that data and put it into their system. Maybe it doesn't match, and so they have to go back to the, you know, a couple steps and figure out what the correct data is. So that's it's, it's incredibly inefficient, uh, and it leads to all sorts of errors because, you know, if you've done this before where you're typing data into an Excel spreadsheet and you accidentally add a zero or you put it in the wrong field. And then all of a sudden, everything is a mess. Um, so blockchain just allows each entity to know that the data that I see is the same as the data that you see. We don't need to verify it because it's not, at least in Corda, it's not written on the blockchain until both the entity that's put it on the blockchain and the entity that's receiving it have verified that it's correct. And so at that point, it's written. 
and, and I guess the second, uh, which is really what, what you're talking about, is, is visibility into how the good has been processed. So in theory, this is what like a certificate of origin does. But in reality, uh, a certificate of origin is, is not necessarily checked properly. It's, it's, the data is not necessarily correct. There's a lot of fraud involved. And, and so blockchain can allow you to have additional visibility into the, the processing of that good as it moves through the supply chain. Uh, which allows those documents to potentially have much more information and, and be more uh, realistic uh, in terms of what's happened to the good. With a company that has like multiple ERP systems, they could use blockchain or they could use Corda to kind of connect those two entities, internal entities, but have them communicate on, on the one platform. Because before, if you looked at digitization in trade, uh, it was about, you know, your own electronic system. Uh, so you, you know, purchased a platform and you kind of forced all your suppliers to be on that platform. That's why EDI, for example, spread so quickly because Walmart adopted it and said, now every single supplier that if you want to sell to Walmart, you will use EDI. And so they did. And you know, Walmart is big enough to be able to do that. Other companies are not. So you end up with these multiple systems that... If you're a small supplier, you don't just sell to one company. You probably sell to a bunch of different companies, and you would have to use each of their individual formats. So with blockchain, what it allows you to do is, and this is not blockchain alone, right? It's also the, the evolution around APIs. So what you can use is you can use an API that would allow you to feed data onto the blockchain system seamlessly from your ERP that would automatically take that data, populate it the way it needs to look, and then push it forward onto the chain. The, the challenge is there's a lot of businesses whose revenue comes from building these bridges between ERP systems and, you know, the, the buyer's platform. So it's, it's quite slow that way as, as well. It, it's able to change the way that we do business. It's able to remove a lot of the steps that we have today. And in fact, not just remove them, but make them more efficient and much easier to verify. So it's, it's changing the process at a number of different levels, which is pretty exciting. Is this accessible to SMEs? So I, I love that you brought that up because it actually brings up uh, an initial shortcoming that we had in our platform that was something that I was able to help work on uh, to, to solve that issue. So, you know, I, I mentioned before that one thing that's important for enterprise blockchains is identity. So you do need to know the identity of everybody on the blockchain. Um, and the way that we had it, uh, we had all initially designed this was that what that meant was each entity had to run a node and a node is a server. It, which is fine if you're Walmart, but if you're, you know, a mom and pop shop that occasionally, you know, sends a few transactions, you don't want to run a server. You don't know what it is. You don't have the ability to maintain it, nor do you want to. Um, who's going to update it for you? So that particular model of each entity having a node didn't actually make a lot of sense for supply chain. And, and that would have continued the exclusion of small and medium-sized enterprises. It wouldn't have helped them. But, you know, what we did was we said, look, what, what you need is a way for the SMEs to be able to sign a transaction. They don't want to host this. So we went and we redesigned the platform a little bit to allow for a single node to have multiple identities in that node. So you could host, you know, somebody else could host it, maybe your bank. They could host a node with accounts for 1,000 different suppliers or 10,000 different suppliers. When those suppliers did a transaction, they went, they could use their private key. Um, but they didn't have to maintain it themselves. So that's, it's, and it's something we're seeing throughout the space. I mean, blockchain is so new that, you know, we make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and so 
you know, we're learning and changing as we go, which is which is really healthy. I was reading up on the, like the innovation and design thinking and all that, and it seems like you're you're following that kind of mindset. Do you have experience in, in innovation itself, or is it just something that goes with the territory being in a startup? Well, I you know I started doing uh, innovation wise in Asian Development Bank because what we wanted to do was uh, we had a managing director general who really wanted to promote innovation in the bank because look when you have like a triple A credit rating you want to keep things as they are. You need to keep that credit rating, so you don't want to do anything too risky. But you do want to allow for new products to go in and, and to better service your developing countries. So he wanted to see who, what groups in the bank were being innovative. And so I was, you know, I headed up this team where we uh, you know, did the survey and we looked across the bank and we identified what teams were doing innovative new products and, and who was responsible for those teams and what were they implementing. And and it was really exciting to, to, to learn how to how do you identify it? How do you incentivize it in, in a risk-averse culture? Um, so that's that's really where I got started, which was like the hardest thing because now I'm in a startup and it's much easier to do that because you it's, it, you don't need to incent quite as much. You know, people are excited and they want to try new things and they have great new ideas and they're like, here's some crazy technology. Like, let's see what it can do. And it's, it's a very different dynamic. It, it took a little bit of getting used to <laughs> to be completely transparent, it really did. But now I've, I've kind of gotten into it and I can you know, use a lot of the, the skills that I've, I've learned before in, in what I'm doing now. Can you tell us a little bit maybe about your day-to-day and your current role at R3? Like uh, you focus on, on research, but like what is it that directs your sales every day? Sure, um, well, most of my time is spent uh, on, on a couple of different things. The, the first is on building consortiums. Because one thing that's very different about blockchain is, I mean, you can do it as an individual company, but if you really want to capture the benefits of it, you want to do it as a consortium. And that's, it's really reorganized collaboration uh, and the way that companies work together. Because if you think about, for example, a bunch of banks working together or even a bunch of container shippers working together, they face antitrust issues. Right? They can't just form an alliance. They actually have to go through a lot of compliance and, and regulatory hurdles to be able to do that. But with blockchain, if you want the technology to work, you need to have most of the ecosystem uh, you know, at least involved in this. And, and they all recognize that. So this, this kind of reorganization of collaboration is something I spend a lot of time on, working with members to understand how you would run this, what the governance looks like, how, how this can promote and scale the project that you're designing. Um, so that's that's one thing that I do is really this this consortium building part. Uh, another part is helping clients when they come in and say, uh, I have this business problem. I think blockchain is the right solution. Can you help me understand how to map this out? So I would you know work with them and, and bring in the right expertise to understand what is your business process? Where specifically are the problems? Where is blockchain applicable? Because you know when I first came here, most of the requests for blockchain were me pushing rather than Right. So it was me kind of saying, like, don't you want to use blockchain? And they're like, no, get out of here. <laughs> but today it's, it's just the opposite. It's businesses coming to us and saying, I want blockchain for something. And I have to say, well, if you don't know what you need it for, you probably don't need it. Right. So you, you don't just put in blockchain. I mean, it's a new technology. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be expensive. It's going to change the way you do business. If, if you're fine with a centralized system, you don't need blockchain. But if you do have like a direct problem, we can identify what that problem is. Let me help you build it in a way that makes sense for you. And isn't too disruptive because what you don't want to do is implement 
a brand new technology and like change 45 different things at once and like offer new products and also a different way to, you know, access the user interface and also have new clients. I mean, that it's too much change right away. You really want to step change that. So uh, a lot of it is, is that kind of management. I just wanted to see if you had any career advice for up-and-coming professionals who are interested in blockchain technology trade anything you know periphery in the periphery of trade well i would start with giving uh giving you a story about how i see blockchain really changing trade finance employment so trade finance has always kind of struggled with bringing new people in bringing young people in you know keeping them excited because it's a, a fairly straightforward thing that you do. You're, create, you're creating a letter of credit. It has an established number of steps, and you do those things. So it, it was really struggling bringing in new talent. But now, now we have blockchain, and trade finance has really moved much faster than other parts of banks. And so what we see is much younger people coming in. We see people staying. Um, we see people much more excited about what they're doing. So I think just having blockchain around has has really changed the trade finance industry. We, I mean, it's just it's so interesting to see the complete change in dynamic into like who wants to get involved in it, and who you know who stays. It's it's really really rewarding. I think in in terms of career advice, trade is exciting because trade is everything. There's nothing that trade doesn't do, and so with blockchain, it not only makes trade a little bit more efficient, but what it does is it creates new opportunities. So you can create new products, you can finance it, new parts of the transaction. You know, you can, you can actually verify that something is organic or something, you know, was following these, these different uh, labor standards. So, you know, it's, it's a really exciting time, I think right now to say, okay, well, what are the different applications of this technology that would work? Because really like in, in trade historically, we've always had centralized solutions. And centralized solutions can only get you so far in changing the process. And to the point that you mentioned earlier, what you hear from people is we're in trade because we want to change things. We want to help developing countries or we want to promote efficiencies. We want to grow companies, whatever. All of these things can be done in a new way. And it just involves, it just needs creative people who are excited and have like a very specific target to be able to do that. So I, I think it's a, it's a really great time to be in trade, and it's it's really exciting because you have new job titles now, like people are doing digital, you didn't have that before. You have a broader scope to do what you want to do within the job, which is really cool. You can be creative, whereas before it was less so. <laughs> well, if we could switch gears um, for the, the last part of the interview, I'd like to hear about how you got connected with Trade Experts and um, your thoughts about the group and, you know, what it is we can do with this group moving forward. Sure. Well, so I, I got in touch with them through a fellow trade economist who was, uh, he knew Hannah and Christine. They were writing a paper on blockchain and trade. And he said, oh, well, you know, maybe you guys should get together and, and talk a little bit. Because um, I, I was sort of newly out of the bank and had just started at R3. And so we got to talking about this paper and we ended up uh, co-authoring it together has now been submitted as a book chapter, so that's pretty exciting. But but so that's that's really where I, I, I got to know Hannah um, and the work that she's doing and, and this awesome group. Uh, and so had, had got involved that way. And, and now it's it's very rewarding to see how quickly it's growing, right? It's getting a lot of momentum and there's a lot of uh, support for, for the group, between the group members. It, it's been really exciting. 
you know, one of the goals of the group was to encourage women to, to be on panels and, and don't be afraid to call yourself an expert or an expert. Um, what advice do you have for, for people like me who would be intimidated if they were asked to be on a panel or in a conference or speak publicly about anything generally? What advice would you have? Well, I think first you're you're already quite far ahead because you're doing a podcast. But no one's uh, here. No one's actually looking at me. But but that's that's really the first step, right? It's it's to identify yourself as the expert in your field. To be willing to get out there. It's going to be nerve-wracking. It's 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 not easy to, you know, stand on a panel in front of people and hope that you remember what you're supposed to say. But the only way that people will remember you if they see you and hear you. So if you go to a conference, for example, an academic conference or a trade conference, whatever, ask questions. Even if you're in the audience, ask questions because otherwise no one will remember you were there. So it's really important to get out there, make sure people know you, be public, write things, you know, write blogs, write tweets. It doesn't matter. Just have your name out there. It's incredibly important. I think, you know, once you're invited to a panel, which is often a challenge, uh, you know, just getting the invitations, um, but once you've got it, use it. I mean, that start building your brand. That's that's what that is. You know, what is your expertise? What message do you want to get out there? Say it with confidence. I guess the early challenge is making sure you're able to boil your message down into like three bullet points. Because when you're on that panel, you're gonna get flustered. You're gonna forget. You know, if you have a script, I've, you know, I, I know a lot of us have like written scripts. Uh, you're gonna forget it. You're not gonna be able to look down about uh, on it. So have three bullet points that you want to get across, get them across, and that thing has been a win, no matter what you talk about. One last question is just, what are you excited about in the future of trade? Well, I think it, it's just, it's really about actually changing the way that businesses collaborate and, and do business today. Um, that's been the most exciting thing. I mean, you know, what I do day to day is I'm, I'm working with regulators, right? I'm, I'm working with customs officials and they're like, hey, we want to use this. So really thinking about how we're changing the infrastructure for trade. That's that's really what, what I think blockchain is doing, right? Because it's slowly rebuilding the infrastructure in a way that's more broad based, that allows for electronic documentation, that updating rules, um, improved competition rules, privacy rules, all of these things are being re-architected by, by what we're doing in blockchain. So it's all different things going on at the same time, and they're slowly and sort of stealthily changing the trade infrastructure. And, th and that's what I think is so exciting. Um, well, that was all of the questions that I had. I don't know if there was any other topic or you wanted to add, or can we can add any sort of topics that you find interesting. What I wanted to stress was that blockchain is just another step in the digital revolution. It's not dramatically different from what we were doing before. It's just the decentralized element of it that is different from digital. Digital is always very centralized. And that much better matches what we do in trade. And, and I think that's the most important thing is that this is the first time that every single part of trade is looking at the same technology. There's nobody that's not looking at blockchain. And that goes from the governments to private sector, banks, companies, whatever, consumers as well. So this is the first time that we're all getting together and going, hey, we need to make sure that the rules work for this. And they don't. So let's start to change the rules. And so, and it's happening on a global basis, which is crazy, right? I mean, it's happening in developing countries. It's happening in Africa and Asia and Europe. I mean, it's everywhere. So I think 
think, you know, this global momentum is, is something that's like super cool. Also in that trade is, uh, is relevant again. I feel like it's, it's really been like, um, since I joined, it's just exploded because it wasn't something that, you know, in early 2000s, I guess, that I was really aware of. And so I feel like in the last 20 years, it's definitely exploded in, in, in the popular press and media and everything like that. So sure for sure I mean and that's and that's been really rewarding as well because it used to be like hey can I tell you about trade and people were like no thank you (laughs) and now all of a sudden everybody wants to talk about it so yeah I I agree it's it's that's pretty great well the other thing I struggle with is people ask me what I do and I'm like oh do you have 20 minutes or you know do I just have you know a few seconds here because it's like there's so much and it's so exciting and I want to tell you everything that I do and how interesting it is but you're right people are like that's not (laughs) <laughs> that interesting. So when when someone asks you, what do you do? What is your response? So when, when people ask me what I do, I tell them I'm rebuilding the architecture for trade. Wow. Because that's really what we're doing with blockchain. Awesome. I love it. Okay. Well, great. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. Thank you so much for your time and your input here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great to meet you. Thanks for listening to this episode. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn and at tradeexperts.org.